Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. I'm Logan Jones here with Evan Knowles, recording out of our favorite studio in Lexington, Awesome Inc. Uh, we just sat down with Sarah Sanders of Native. But before we get to that, uh, just some finance news, tech news we like to talk about. Tesla has a five to one stock split to make their stock more affordable for all the retail Robinhood investors. Yes, I think this is something we, we should start talking more about on, on as many episodes as we can, because I think there's an upswing and people getting interested in finance, especially the younger community, and uh, they need some more education, obviously, because uh, Tesla split their stock and it went up extremely uh, exorbitant amounts, uh, exorbitant amount of money. Uh, the What I'm trying to say is that people drove the stock price up over a stock split and that's not how it works well nobody under everyone's just like oh it's going to get cheaper yeah and then people are going to drive it up again i mean i'm pumped about it it's great (laughs) if you already have let you get in if you couldn't afford a single share yeah uh but it doesn't help your returns yeah i mean you know over the long run doesn't. well i just think more people are now going to dive into it and drive the price up even more once it's that's what i'm saying that's not good i mean yeah not good well none of this market is fundamental right now yeah. functioning the way it should be yeah um this was also a cool episode because we had uh our, our content design head of content design i think is what we call you uh we got jake in the studio with us taking some content so we're hoping to switch things up a little bit on social this week um have some cool cool content a little behind the scenes action for you guys jake here supporting us and taking some some cool pictures of us making us look like we know what we're doing um so that was fun we're glad to have, glad to have jake here with us he's sitting here in the corner laughing at us as we record this intro um, He's telling me also I need to look up more. I'm not. Look up. Yeah, I've got to look, look up, up the, the camera. camera. Got to make some eye contact with the fans. <laughs> but uh, another thing, a little bit of news as well, is Fortnite got kicked off the App Store day. Uh, crazy, crazy story. Uh, you know, Apple's always been thought to have a monopoly on the App Store. Um, and they take a 30% fee from any kind of in-app purchases or any kind of purchases that go through the App Store. Um, and... Epic Games, the creators of Fortnite. You play Fortnite? I played Fortnite. I don't anymore, but I'm missing it now that we're talking about it. Uh, The creators of Fortnite got kicked off because they tried to circumvent Apple's fee by creating their own in-app purchase platform, and Apple said absolutely not and kicked them off. Uh, So crazy story. We'll see what happens, but now uh, Epic Games is suing Apple uh, for kicking them off uh, under the... um, this is a monopoly kind of crap. Yeah. Well, so I don't even know if I understand this. So Apple, the App Store gets a 30% cut of in-app purchases. Yeah, any, any kind of purchases that go through apps uh, on their store. So like I used to play Clash of Clans all the time, and you could yeah. like pay to speed up, like get gems, speed up your process. You guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Clash of Clans is, is awesome. I, mean, I didn't play it, but... Okay, so but anytime I would pay for gems, they would take a 30% cut of that? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yep. That's, all right, well, uh, I didn't know that. That's... Apple, yeah, I mean, Apple takes these ridiculous cuts of anything that is on their platform. Yeah, that's that's wild. That's an app. That's um, wild. And so people are starting to get pissed. You've seen a lot of companies start to start to do this kind of stuff. Um, I think that more are going to do it. Um, there was also controversy around the the email client Hey, um, which is a brand new startup. Uh, they tried to circumvent it as well, um, and they just you know people are getting pissed. No, I don't blame them. But uh, let's talk about this episode. For sure. Sat down with Sarah Sanders, like I mentioned, Sarah Sanders of Native. Um, And this was a fun interview, one, because it was uh, in person, which is nice. Um, Everyone was able to sit a a good distance apart and not hopefully risk coronavirus too much. Um, But, you know, it's always good to to get in person, person interview with them going. And it was also really nice because this is an interview we've kind of been 
um, chasing back and forth for, for a little bit now. I met Sarah. Uh, it's probably been over a year now. And then you just sat down and had lunch with her. And we finally were able to get together and, and record an episode. Um, and this was also a cool episode because we've we've had this trend of talking a lot about uh, ag tech. So we probably have five yeah. guests on now yeah. in the ag tech space. And they're all, they're all starting to communicate with each other, which is really cool. So as um, she actually reached out to us before we were um, talking about recording with her. And she had listened to our episode with Adam Van Wingerden of the Silver Fern Group and just wanted to uh, get to know him. So that was you know, awesome for us. We love connecting uh, past guests. We love connecting, you know, people who are fans with our guests if they uh, are really resonating with what they're doing. So that was a cool moment for us to be able to um, make those connections. That's kind of what we're about. That's, that's one of my favorite things to do with this with this podcast. Yep. It was good to hear about our company. So Native is creating basically a way to bring together the entire supply chain behind, you know, what you eat. Um, you know, you sit down at a restaurant, you really have no idea where any of that food's coming from. And natives working hard to connect those dots. So you go to the grocery store, you get something off the shelf, some produce, you scan a QR code, and it tells you exactly where it comes from, how it was grown. And it's just a really cool transparency uh, piece into the supply chain that they have already connected on the front end uh, with some great uh, data analytics and things around, you know, farming and uh, inventory and things of that nature. Um, So this is just a really fascinating space that's really blowing up pretty fast. A lot of innovative stuff's popping up, so we're continuing to bring these these guests to you all because it's it's moving super fast. The industry is one of the last legacy industries. You know, there's healthcare, there's real estate, there's uh, agriculture, there's architecture, engineering. You know, there's all these pretty legacy industries that are hard to get into as a tech founder. And you know, Sarah's done a great job, uh, just like many of the other entrepreneurs we've had on here uh, of doing that, and it's growing super fast. Yeah, we also got to have. Uh, dive into your guys's takes on entrepreneurial education and what UK's done uh, done on that front. And you guys are on that emerging leaders board together, so you you have a unique perspective. And it was really interesting listening to you guys talk about your experiences there and uh, what's being done, what your experience was like when you were there, and what's being done now. I got to talk a little bit about how things have changed because I think we had a slightly different experience, um, both being interested in entrepreneurship and going through UK. Uh, so there's a lot of good content about. Um, you know, what can be done on the, on the education front when it comes to entrepreneurship. And um, I, I'm really happy that Evan and Sarah are on that board because those are some some great voices to have influencing where the university is going or at least get providing some feedback because that's some important stuff as these next level of entrepreneurs uh, come up from high school and, and start getting an education in college. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's been good to get to know her. She's, she's somebody that's that's definitely you know, good to have on that board from, you know, somebody that's gone to New York and come back. Yeah, exactly. That's another point. She, uh, she's she been in New York starting this company, is now moved back, is living in Cincinnati, um, back here in the Midwest, just where, where we want everyone to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So boomerang. That's boomerang. Boomerang. Yeah. Love the boomerangs. Uh, before we get into it, uh, you know, we're going to start asking you guys more. Uh, we got we to gotta start <laughs> asking go. people to <laughs> review the podcast. Review the podcast. Yeah. Jake's over here saying thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, we got to do a better job of that. So if you, if you like what we're doing, we'll provide you value and you're taking some things away from from uh, these podcasts. Please review because that's important. And for subscribe. Us. And subscribe. And subscribe. Maybe like our stuff on social media. Share it if you want to yeah. do that. That helps all, us reach a larger audience. So that's that's what we want. Share an episode with your mom, maybe, or your dad, or your brother, someone. Yeah. Just send send an episode. Share it. Help us get the word out. Um, so that's our plug for ourselves. Let's dive into this episode.
right, welcome back everybody. We've got Sarah Sanders in here, co-founder of Native. Thanks for joining. Of course, happy to be here. Yeah, we had a great, uh, we sat down at Carson's and got drinks. I know mm -hmm. you got lunch with, with Logan as well, right? Uh, well, we rescheduled lunch, oh, still okay. to be determined. All right, yeah. gotcha. Well, coming soon. <laughs> yes, it's been good getting to know you. We're looking forward to diving in even deeper here on the podcast and sharing you know, your knowledge and your experience with, uh, with the audience, with the community. Um, so before we get into anything with Native, let's jump into your background, kind okay. of where you're from, education, professional background up towards uh, when you started Native. So just take it wherever you want to go. Sure. Uh, born right here in Lexington, um, raised in Cincinnati, went to UK, um, grew up in the family restaurant business. So my family's restaurant company was actually started in Kentucky um, God, 35 something years ago. I won't say the real number. My dad wouldn't be thrilled to hear it. Um you know, 35, 40 years ago here, right, right here in Kentucky. So I grew up at the end of the food supply chain and um, spent my whole life around that. And that's the inspiration for, you know, the company I'll tell you more about here shortly. But studied uh, business management at UK, uh, graduated in 2012, national championship year, which I'm pretty proud oh, of. Awesome. Although I hope somebody can <laughs> find, can fun. get us another one here soon. Stop. Yep. So only... Only matter of time. Yep. We're getting close. And I went to grad school, um, did a very brief stint in grad school, was able to do an MBA in just under a year at Xavier. They have a great international business program. Went to China for two weeks, Israel for two weeks, um, and that was a great experience. But really spent that time, realized I didn't want to be in the family restaurant business necessarily, but technology and sustainability were really interesting to me. Took that time to reset, learn a little bit figure out what, what I wanted to do, and um, ultimately ended up now certainly at the intersection of, of both industries. So food has always been a part of my background and my inspiration, um, but but took the tech angle instead of the uh, restaurant route, I suppose. A lot so, better margins there. Uh, I hear the multiples are better. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, I know a story you told me before about your background that kind of influenced you mm -hmm. towards entrepreneurship that you told was uh, meeting Nate Morris yeah. uh, on, a, on a flight, yeah. which is pretty random. So go through that story and how it influenced you and inspired you to step into entrepreneurship. Yeah, Xavier's a basketball school, but I'm always a Kentucky fan. So like I went to go watch the Cats in Dallas. They were playing Baylor. I might have... I don't recommend it, but I might have skipped a day of class to go do it. Of course. Knowing there was an ice storm about to blow through, but I went anyway and um, got stuck there for an extended period of time. They did still play the game, um, and I think we won. I should know, but I think that we won. And that was a good experience. Anyway, long flight back. Took, I think, 34 hours before I actually got a flight. And it was just to Atlanta, but I was like, I got to get that, get out of, you know, Texas. So ended up on the last seat of the plane next to the bathroom. I had been flying all day. Honestly, it was kind of, kind of gross. Um, but I was seated next to him and I had my UK vest on. And if anybody knows Nate, he likes to talk. And he asked me, you know, did you go to UK? Were you here for the game? And, um, not knowing who he was, long story short, um, you know, he's this, the founder and CEO of Rubicon Global uh, waste and recycling technology company with a great smart cities program, mitigate waste, generate more data, awareness, things like that. And uh, I worked for him uh, as his assistant for a while in a variety of other roles at the company. And he basically said, you know, if you're interested in technology and sustainability, we've got both. And so that was my entry point 
um, out of the family restaurant business, out of grad school, into a new trajectory in which one I've, you know, extremely passionate about and have stuck with since. Yeah. And at what stage was Rubicon Global at that time? They were about to raise a series B of 30 million. I believe the round right before that was five. So totally different stages. But I think I was employee like 90, which is, you know, still pretty big, but um, they had a lot of, you know, solid customers and things like that. So early, but not like first 10 kind of thing. So I still saw a lot, but yeah. For sure. So, okay, let's transition into how that inspired uh, Native and how you came up with the idea for Native, why you dove into Native, um, and kind of give us the the elevator pitch for what Native is. Okay, so like I said, it came from the, the food space, end of the food supply chain. Um, at Rubicon, we talked about, you know, mitigating waste, and one of the biggest offenders of, you know, food, or of waste is food waste. Mm-hmm, for sure. So paid a lot of attention to that. I actually, after I left Rubicon, after about two and a half years, went to Toast, which is a cloud-based point-of-sale system um, for restaurants. So I was back around food and started thinking about it a lot more um, as I was working in the restaurant space, again, just on the tech side. What I quickly got into was going to food tech, ag tech events. And it turns out in 2018, there were 300 of them in New York City where I was living at the time. So any, almost any day of the week, I could go find something. And at a lot of these events, it was, you know, restaurant tech focus, but also agriculture. Naturally started building a lot of relationships, um, started on a consulting project with my now business partner um, on like kind of a food mate, food waste mitigation um, company idea. And we realized, you know, all right, if we're going to accomplish the issue of food waste and talk to farms, what's the primary issue? If I were to call them today, how would I get, you know, inventory information? And that's actually how we uncovered a cloud-based tool gap at the farm level. They're like, oh, we're using Excel spreadsheets. And a family farm would tell me that, and I'm not going to like name names, but somebody that raised over $100 million also was using Excel spreadsheets to manage their inventory. And I was like, wow, that that's wild. And so from that idea, uncovered a wealth of opportunity within, you know, kind of one of the last industries that has a lot of room for improvement and digitizing and cloud-based tools to give you real-time information for any part of the operation and even downstream in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly at that point in New York City, um, actually, one step back, also during my trip to Israel for my Xavier MBA program, we went there for two weeks, we went to a kibbutz, which if you don't know, is like um, a family farm where, you know, um, it's very community driven. And it was where Netafim, which is a slow drip irrigation system, it sounds super boring, but it's really important because it mitigates the use of water and agriculture runs more efficiently. That was kind of my first spark. So um I didn't realize at the time how influential, you know, one visit and one trip was, but it actually kind of laid the foundation and planted some, no pun intended, I hate when that happens, (laughs) (laughs) curiosity into my mind for what I wanted to do. Yeah. What, what is, what has kept this industry from adopting these cloud tools prior to you? Yeah. uh, You have a huge, yeah, you have a huge divide. I mean, you have small family farms, you have emerging farms that have raised a little bit of capital, um, farms of all sizes, and there weren't great tools for the small to mid-sized market. So initially, we looked at that market, extremely overlooked. Um, 
and you just went straight to ERP systems where your first line item when you're buying one is, you know, servers, which most often they'll tell you they're a hybrid company, a lot of these big ERP providers. SAP, uh, Oracle. Yeah, We don't need to name names. There's plenty <laughs> of them. There's industry-specific ones too. Okay, okay. But, you know, it, it, we're living in a cloud-based world where that drives the most efficient operation. And, you know, that was that was certainly uh, an opportunity to uncover. But, you know, smaller family farms should have similar tools or tools at all that should be easy to use and affordable. It's a very low-margin industry at the farm level that are at least similar or will help them grow so that they don't have to change and make a massive change to their operation by swapping out one system for the other. You should be able to start as a smaller farm and grow into something remotely similar. And those just didn't even exist. So are you selling to smaller farms, medium-sized farms, enterprise? Where are you? Yeah, kind of... we have we have um, two core products. So the first one and our original inspiration was creating some type of farm management software. And originally, like three years ago, we were like, okay, we're just going to build an inventory system specific to uh, farming. There's There's a market for that. And then it became pre-harvest and post-harvest tools. So the time that I even purchased the seed, I planted it in the ground, uh, it grows, we package it. Okay, so then comes post-harvest. So we package it in this container at this size, at this price, at this time, all those things. Um, so that's been, you know, a successful product um, for us. And, and, and really, big picture, there's a market for that, and there's a lot more we're doing as well. Um, I'm not sure if I answered the question yeah, entirely, no, but no, you're good. <laughs> you're good. Uh, so when we got drinks, uh, yeah. you had teased a new product yeah. that, that's coming out that I yeah. really, really uh, enjoyed hearing about, and, and I love the yeah. concept of it. So tell us more about that, and let's dig into that. Yeah, I mean, listen, the the reason that we invested time and resources into building cloud-based tools in general is the start of the, the supply chain needs to be connected. It needs to be digitized before you can do a lot more throughout the supply chain. What drives the supply chain? Yeah. All of us in this room, consumers. Um, if we're not buying these products or we don't demand these products are being grown, then there's no point in growing them. And how can we get information back and forth? So that's why we built the first set of tools. What is our larger vision is really to connect agriculture producers in the supply chain to the end consumer and back and create this really great real-time feedback loop. Um, and we laid the foundation by doing that. And so, yeah, we're rolling out. We've already rolled it out, kind of a version one, tested it with some of our existing customer base. Um, and now I'm realizing I didn't entirely answer the question, who's your customer base? Small, small farms, you know, down to family farms, all the way up to enterprise. You know, we've got farms, greenhouses, you know, one of their locations is 15, 20 plus acres under glass, which is, which is pretty large across the board. But, you know, why do we do that big picture? to collect data, to be efficient at the source, but also to communicate with our end consumer. And that's what our larger vision is at Native, is to create a more interconnected food system to run more efficiently for you and I to know more about the products that are being grown and be able to communicate and create a great feedback loop to those that are growing my food. So before I plant my next batch of seeds, Let's make sure our demand in each of these markets where it's ultimately going, whether it's a grocer or direct-to-consumer D2C, is, you know, what we think it should be, right? So with this transparency emerging where now consumers can see exactly where their food's coming from, yeah. is that going to give rise to direct-to-consumer farms where 
it's it's grown at the farm and then goes straight to the consumer. I guess that's almost like a, a farmer's market, but I feel like yeah. there's a more efficient way to do it if with, with your software. Yeah, I mean, part of it is demand, right? But part of it is like, okay. Awareness. Take, take, yeah, take another yeah. step back too. Let's think about the fresh produce industry, which is to date, you know, our largest area we've driven revenue from. How many brands that you buy can you name? Produce brands. Yeah, no, none. Maybe the banana Dole, brand. Dole, Driscoll's. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, What's even that? for me, it's sometimes the woman with the bananas on, a, on her head. What's the name of that one? Chiquita. Chiquita. <laughs> Off the top of the Chiquita head, banana. Nice. Okay. So that's, that's challenging for you. And you look at the CPG industry, you know, packaged goods, you look at any other industry, brand awareness is a yeah, huge thing. People sure. are demanding brands that they know and they have a connection with and they are demanding a relationship with the farmer or at least a way to like get to know them. Um, and there's, there's a real lack of, um, brand loyalty in this space, maybe because you can't buy, find it on a regular basis or most often you don't even know where it came from. That's part of the problem we're solving. And with fresh produce, naturally you have some inconsistency in your product Mm -hmm. because you grow it and it's a living thing most of the time. Um, how can we communicate what other varieties of lettuces? Like, I really like your lettuce brand. All of a sudden, I'm looking for brands in the grocery store. That's new. And there's these emerging brands com- com- competing, coming into the, the industry, trying with everything they have to make a name for themselves and to compete. So how can we help consumers get to know them, but also really quickly and really efficiently through packaging, digital signage in the grocery store, um, tell that brand what I think and why I'm going to buy them or maybe why I'm not going to buy them. But that's also important information for me to know. So tell us a little bit about how you're actually connecting these things. So how does a consumer mm-hmm. uh, actually see where this brand has come from? Yeah. Talk about the actual process that a consumer would go through. Yeah, right now, QR codes. For sure. Um, let's dive into that. You know, yeah, let's dive in. So uh, engagement for QR codes, it's like, it's fascinating because people say, you know, traditionally, what is the engagement level? It's so low. Well, if we look at Japan, you know, the country that, if I'm not mistaken, created it, or at least the comp, you know, the, that owns the um, rights to the term QR code mm-hmm. is based in Japan. The U.S. adoption is much lower, but I don't want to thank COVID for anything. There's, I think, a lot of good things to come from it, but one of them is QR codes are everywhere. That's mm-hmm. how we read a menu now in a restaurant. Yep. Um, it, it's helped us, right? Um, so it's a simple way, even if I only got under 5% feedback initially, making an investment um, and digitizing and creating digital landing pages from my packaging, it's a lot more information than I was probably collecting more. And I'm not standing in my Kroger store or my Whole Foods store or my local mom and pop grocer to know what they're actually thinking or even what they're thinking when they go home. That's really important information. You look at a company like Driscoll's, they built something called the Delight Platform. And I think they only had, there's a, there's a really great Harvard Business case study on it. But they built this to be transparent about their supply chain and to start to pinpoint, you know, all this product goes all over the country after we grow it. But we can integrate traceability into it or not. But berries are really delicate. Um, they mold really easily. They get damaged really easily. And so they said, you know, we need to invest in this platform. We have a really loyal customer base. And when we talk to a lot of emerging brands in agriculture or a lot that are losing market share, they're like, wow, we really missed something important here. So even the smallest bit of feedback, good or bad, 
um, and to, to understand people's purchasing decisions goes a long way. So QR codes is the current um, means for doing that and integrating that into packaging by, um, you know, doing that before the packaging is produced or even just adding a sticker to something like fresh produce. Makes sense. Cool. Wanted to, uh, when we got drinks, we talked about education for a while. Um, I want to talk about that yeah. because I think we have some unique perspectives we can share. Um, you and I are on UK's, uh, the business school's emerging leaders yep. board, and that's been a, a good experience. We talked about that for a bit. Yeah. Um, so talk about, you know, how and why you're getting more involved now with education, particularly with UK, because you said you're actively trying to get more involved and yeah. let's transition that into like education around entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. I don't believe entrepreneurship was yet a major or even a minor at UK. Um, I had already made up my mind pretty early on. I wanted to do management because I felt it was well-rounded. But especially since Dean Simon Sheeler has come in, I think he's had a huge focus on, you know, this is formal education. This is where you can go. But how do we integrate the two? Um, I think there's a, a lot. I, I just told you I recently recently relocated from New York City back to the Midwest for a variety of reasons, but I think you see a lot of, you know, emerging VC funds that focus specifically on the Midwest. Why do you guys do this po podcast? And from, from my understanding, why do you call it middle tech for this reason, right? Um, there's a lot of really bright kids that feel like they have to go to the coasts and things like that. And quite frankly, from being someone that launched a business at a young age in New York City, um, there's a lot of advantages to doing it in the Midwest or starting it there and bringing it back or bringing a big portion of the, you know, the presence back. So it's to recruit talent, which we've also talked about. That's already, you know, there's already been an ROI there. Um, you know, I it's important because I'm not saying, you know, I'm that important, <laughs> but like if I can have an impact on one or two students to encourage them that, you know, there's no right age to become an entrepreneur um, I always encourage, you know, the younger you are to go work as closely as you can. If you want to go work at a startup, work as closely as you can to the CEO or, you know, an executive level person, because you're going to learn 10 X what you're going to learn in an entry level role. And it might pay you $10,000 more right out of school, but what are you going for? And so just to give people my unfiltered opinion, um, when asked, or when the school asked me to speak, um, it, it, try to make a difference and encourage entrepreneurship at a younger age. Um, maybe I would have done it sooner. I would not change my path for anything. Um, but I think there's a lot of students that want to hear from people five, you know, two, five, ten years removed from school and not necessarily someone who's close to retirement and sold three companies. That's great. But I think you get the best information and honest information from people that, you know, are thinking about it at the university level. Yeah, that's probably that was the biggest reason I got involved in that in that board. And, and I I go back and I try to talk to as many classes as I can mm -hmm. for many of the reasons you just mentioned. Is I, I love to keep tabs on these students coming out of UK that are that are very talented and I love to give back and give yeah, them too. a perspective on. You know, I, I can relate to them. Like you said, we're younger than a lot of the speakers that come in there, so we can relate to them differently. Um, but another another reason I try to stay as close to the university as I can is so that, you know, my opinions as, you know, an entrepreneur and somebody that actually dropped out of out of UK yeah. can be heard there. You know, I don't want to just drop out and not tell them why and not share why and not yeah. give back so that other people 
don't feel like they they necessarily need to drop out. Maybe they should. Maybe they should. Yeah. But some don't. Um, I thought that was great. That yeah. was immediately. I think. <laughs> I think I saw you. We were on our. Um, we were on our call, and I messaged him on LinkedIn because he was the only one that was, you know, another entrepreneur, and he told me that. And um, I know plenty of people that have dropped out of school. My business partner did. I think halfway through college, and you know, we're we're in the same place. We co-founded a company together. So it's it's what feels right for you. And sometimes people need or feel like they need, you know, a couple more years of education and confidence to iron out an idea or they don't know where to start and that's the best path for them. Sometimes it's not, but I, I was definitely a nerd that stayed in school and that was right for me. But you know, you knew what you were doing and that's gotten you exactly where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, there just needs to be – UK is doing a much, much better job around entrepreneurship. You know, you know this. You've talked to the dean about this, and I think they're just really improving. But when yeah. I was in school like you, there was no entrepreneurship, really great paths. There was nothing – there was no outlet for me to go and spend a lot of time around other people that wanted to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, I'm thrilled to see that, and I think it will only continue to get better, especially in an interesting year like this where retention could be a huge challenge for them. Um, not just our university, but others. And, um, you know, how can we drive entrepreneurship at the earliest stage possible in, you know, post-high school education, encourage people to do that. It's great for the university to have entrepreneurs coming out of it. Um, But, yeah, giving back is certainly a big part of it. It's just fun. Totally. There's a lot of bright kids there. There are. And you had mentioned that, you know, you're you're trying to figure out ways to – you know, improve the entrepreneurship scene there. What are some ideas or some thoughts that you have on, on ways colleges, maybe not just UK in general, should yeah. try to foster more people that want to become entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or at least support them? I didn't have any, I didn't feel supported. That was another thing with me when I was at UK. I, right. I had op- openly told a lot of people, like, listen, like entrepreneurship, startups, technology, like that's my thing. And they just couldn't point me anywhere. Yeah. Teachers would kind of talk down to me if I went to an event. Sure. Like, you shouldn't be skipping class to go to this event. I'm like, hmm, well, I this is what I want to do. <laughs> and so it's like, what, uh, you went to a basketball game and I, yeah, yeah, well, okay. Yeah. It was for basketball. It's different, but I have different. skipped things yes. for a greater yeah. purpose yeah. where I saw an ROI. Yeah. So what should colleges try to do better to, to foster, at least make people that want to be entrepreneur, entrepreneurs feel more supported? I think, you know, UK did a great thing recently. We were just talking about, Destin Bell before this, who took over E-Club, yep. Entrepreneurship Club at UK. And it served the entire university, not just the business school, because I think a problem is people feel like that has to come from the business school. But it doesn't have to. That should come from the pre-med majors. That should come from, you know, the people studying fashion design. That should come from everywhere. And I think there's a lot you can learn from people in other industries. A lot of my inspiration for what we're doing with Native is, okay, we just talked about brand awareness. Yeah. Well, why do we have it in every other industry and how do they get it right? How do we apply this to to produce? So making sure there's a very intricate cross-cultural entrepreneurship environment and it is not only driven through business school because that's not going to be the best way to achieve that type of culture at your university. We want to talk about university-wide. Gatton's a great school. It's probably where the majority of entrepreneurs will come from in the foreseeable future, but I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, it yeah. shouldn't be that way, and you shouldn't feel like you have to get a business minor. You know, maybe you're the idea person, and you go partner with someone that is the business-minded person, and you build, you know, a hundred million-dollar business. That's yes. amazing, and that's a perfectly fine path. 
So my perspective is a little bit different because when I got there, they had the entrepreneurship LLP. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got into it immediately and was around people who had the same ideas as me. Actually, Jesse, who we hung out with last night, that's how I met Jesse was through that entrepreneurship LLP. And through that, uh, that's how I met Brian Rainey. That's how I met Randall Stevens for the first time. That's how I met Morgan Franklin. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where I met all these people for the first time. Um, And I think to your point about what what can the university be doing or what are they doing right now is bringing in people like that and exposing real entrepreneurs to the students and letting them uh, be inspired by those stories. And I can tell you uh, one very pivotal moment. I was in one of these classes that was, I think it was a communications class centered around entrepreneurship. And Evan, this is where I met Evan. Yeah. He came and spoke to the class. And through this class, uh, you know, I I was getting a lot of value out of it. But I was like, what what can I do to take this the extra mile for myself? Mm -hmm. And I told myself I'm going to introduce myself to everyone and try to either get coffee or lunch with them. Yeah. Um, Evan came and talked. I really loved what he was talking about with yeah. Fuji and entrepreneurship. Uh, chased Evan down after class, introduced myself, and then that relationship was just kind of snowballed. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the reason I'm at my current job now. That's the reason I'm sitting here recording a podcast with him. Um, so I think that's the big part is bringing in people who have actually done it um, and getting that word out about people who are experienced in this and, and people that I can look at and be like, you know, I looked at Evan, I was like, that could be me. That's not yeah. someone that's that far removed from what I'm doing right yeah. now. Yeah. I, I think the most important thing, and it's not to say that experience from someone that's 40 plus years old is invaluable, but it takes a lot of confidence at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old to walk up to someone that's accomplished or even somebody that's raised a million dollars. Like, what do I say? What if they think I'm stupid? You know, they've probably (laughs) been asked this question a million times and you know, I will be the first to say I was not very secure when I was that age. And I, you know, wasn't sure enough to raise my hand in class. Sometimes like to think I've come a long way, but the, the closer in age or the closer and like profile of who that person is to them, for sure, the more likely they are to take the first step, and I think that's something that the university has done a good job of recently is connecting people that are like the students and they can relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, you got to give credit to the university. That's tough to do. Like to find those people who are yeah. in that perfect little zone of, you yeah. know, they haven't like exploded yet, but they're doing really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, props to the professors mostly, I'm sure, that, yeah. that managed to find them. I think them. there's a lot of people involved that have, yeah, that have seen, you know, if we want to be a, a top business school, top university in general you know, here's where we've missed the mark. And it comes from feedback from like, you know, I've been pretty honest with them. Like, Mm -hmm. this is what I loved about the school, but this is where I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm doing well in my career right now, but you know, maybe I, you know, could be doing even better. Yeah. Well, props to UK for, uh, you know, having Evan join at all and having that perspective. I think that's, Oh, I was thrilled. I shot him a LinkedIn message right away. And, (laughs) um, so far we've been, we've hit it off quite nicely since. That's pretty good. I remember when I was applying, uh, I I put kind of like, why do you want to join this board? And I'm like, well, you need, I think you need my perspective. It's like Mm -hmm. everybody else on here, I'm sure is a graduate. Everybody else on here is, uh, you know, working in these industries, I'm, I, I doubt there's going to be a lot of people in the tech space. I mean, how yeah. many people do you think we're in the tech space on this thing? I don't know, but if we're forgetting people, I hope they reach out to yeah. us when they hear this. Yes. But <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I've got a perspective that I'm pretty sure is rather unique, and I'd love to be able to share that, you know, with this board. Yeah. It's kind of, what's kind of my take on it. That's a great I'm great glad I made it, too, because it's been a good experience. And I'm, yeah. Again, it's, it's good to give back. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's start to wind this down like we usually do and yeah. talk about Kentucky. First question is – Contrast New York City, mm-hmm. 
scene to you know Cincinnati and then this this scene here in Kentucky? Drastic. I was asked this yesterday. Um, Destin asked me, and we were talking about you know what are the differences and you know especially for everybody that makes one trip and does like New York City the touristy way. And you can do San Francisco the same. You can do L.A. like other tech tech hubs the same and be in and out and not really absorb it in a like if I were to work here day to day culture, that's a total difference. And I like thought I didn't like New York city until I went on a business trip and I had friends that worked there and I got to see it from a totally like different perspective. Um, the most motivated people that you'll ever meet, not every single one of them, but largely, um, extremely motivated people, but you're starting to see more and more of that. And again, I just shared as a lot of people and a lot of your listeners probably know, and again, why you guys did this is because there's so much talent in this part of the country. We've always felt we had to go there and it's a great experience to do that. I mean, it, it made me really tough and really motivated. It is, you know, it will leave you behind if you go up there and, and you know, you don't really get after it. There's no reason this part of the country cannot have the same culture. I think we're getting there really quickly. And it's for a variety of factors. Um, But it's bigger. And so there are more companies. And it's certainly more diverse, which is amazing. Um, What fosters greater diversity within cities, within universities? Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of initiatives within both to do that. I think that's extremely important. The majority of, I mean, half of my friends when I moved to New York City, were were from other countries or the total opposite coast or have lived all over the world. And I was like, well, not me. Why? Um, I think a lot of that starts at the university level with studying abroad. A lot of people can't afford to study abroad, study abroad scholarships. I mean, that's something I would really like to see myself start one day because that was my greatest regret from undergrad. You know, I had a a good job and I had, you know, my head in the books and I didn't want to miss tailgates. Shame on me. Like, you know, I had a good time. But it takes a lot of layers to create diversity. When you create diversity, it becomes more attractive for people, um, attractive for funding, attractive for starting companies. And we're getting there and these things take time. Um, But a lot of it starts, you know, within universities and making things available Mm -hmm to a larger, broader net of people and keeping it. You can bring it, but you got to keep it and you got to take care of it. And I think Kentucky's doing a really good job right now of that. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast and just kind of in our own conversations, but we feel like the first step towards getting that where we, where we want to go as an ecosystem is just the awareness and the conversation that we have around it. So calling it out and saying, you know, we're doing good, but we still need to be working on the diversity and getting people out. I love, I love your, uh, your quote about going and studying abroad. Yeah. So I got to study abroad in Spain and we went to a co-working space mm-hmm. in Spain and got to talk to some entrepreneurs there yeah. on my, on my program. And it's just like a totally different style of life there yeah. and a totally different style of way of doing things. And it's a perspective that not many people get to see sadly. Um, so I think scholarships and finding ways to get people out there and see those perspectives and see the diversity of the world. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a great thing for an area like this because it's it's rare, which is not the way it should be. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that first and foremost is huge. Um, like I said, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to afford to go to Israel. You know, a lot of people aren't and and won't be, 
what did I say that I saw there? I went to a farm, didn't know till five years later, this would be a, an industry that would inspire me and do all these things. Maybe I wouldn't have known. Maybe I wouldn't have had, you know, that, again, here we go with the cliche. The seed planted inside of me <laughs> to be excited <laughs> about agriculture and go off and do that. I think it's so critical for people, even if it's not studying internationally, but it's having the opportunity to go intern somewhere for the summer and being able to afford housing. Um, you know, being able to create a culture of travel um, and, and, and curiosity is critical. So we can bring that back here, and we certainly have a lot of culture in Kentucky. Um, but I think a lot of people would like to see us get closer to some of the big cities, but still be uniquely ourselves. Yeah, for sure. One thing that you touched on, and we actually talked about last night, um, there is a perspective that I was able to get from living in Los Angeles, and you actually mentioned it attitude-wise in New York. But I think it's deeper than than an attitude. I think it's... Um, out of necessity that people have to work so hard. So like in Los Angeles and the same thing in New yeah. York, if you go to one of these places and you just think you're going to dilly dally around and like, just kind of find yourself like you're not because it's too expensive. You won't be able to live there or afford exactly. to live there. So you find these people that go to Los Angeles and everybody says, that's where you chase your dreams. New York yeah. City is the same yeah. way with finance and some of these other industries. And it's so true because if you go there and you're not chasing your dreams, you're not going as hard as you can, you literally are going to be kicked out of the city because you're going to be evicted of wherever you're living. Yeah. I mean, I went through that. I like thought long and hard about, you know, if I quit my job to take the leap in this city, I mean, Lord knows I couldn't make it harder for myself, but I did. And it pushed me and it made me really tough. And if I wasn't, you know, as tough as I am today, every single day being an entrepreneur is hard. You're going to have better days. You're going to have harder days. But, like, you have to have such a positive attitude. And there are so many people around you at all times in those cities, whether they're sitting next to you on the subway, whatever you might be doing. Like, you can just see that people are motivated. And you got to fight to stay there because it was not easy. I mean, I relieved a lot of financial pressure recently, you know, moving back to this part of the country, but it was hard and I wouldn't change it for anything. But like, that's something great about spending time as you found in those cities is it's not somewhere I can just go to free my mind for a little bit. Yeah. But you're going to be having, you're going to be having a lot of late nights and a lot of early mornings, two or three, just to be able to have the privilege to be there. Yeah. And you got to be on every day and be consistent. So, yep. Uh, what are what are some things that you know after seeing this, the texting in this larger cities that UK can improve on, or not UK but Kentucky in, in general? What are some things that need to happen here? You mentioned diversity. Yeah. What are some others? Um, I guess understanding. We were we were talking about this yesterday when I was over in Louisville with a buddy of mine that also co-founded a company. And I didn't know, like, I knew that I maybe wanted to start a company. I knew that, you know, starting a tech company was cool. But, like, I think you hear a lot more about that in undergrad now. Early stage companies are not only talking about Apple or Ford. At least I hope not. But, you know, what does fundraising mean? Like, 101. Because I can want to start a company, but I don't realize how expensive that is. Almost everybody, like, thinks they will have enough capital or be able to start a company until you get in there. Surprise, you probably don't. So, you know, 
having like venture capitalists because maybe I thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I actually want to work with entrepreneurs and I want to be a venture capitalist, which is a critical part of the tech ecosystem. So not only getting people that are entrepreneurs, but people that critically support the, uh, the infrastructure of entrepreneurship is super important. Um, I don't feel like I really heard from any venture capitalists or bankers or learned what an IPO was an ultimate, you know, um, milestone a lot of people are working towards. So that's important. And I would just say making it not feel like there's a divide between being in college and being able to come to, you know, a place like Awesome Inc. or anyone else's local co-working space that they're at, you know, like I can't afford a membership, making sure that there's a connection between hubs of entrepreneurship and you know, putting business students or encouraging them to subscribe to the local, you know, entrepreneurship hub newsletters just to get started. Or podcast. Subscribe to and podcast. And definitely podcasts. Definitely podcasts, <laughs> particularly middle tech. But um, making sure there's just not um, a divide. Like, I feel like I have to graduate to go be a part of this community. No. It would be great to have more and more and more college students take up 50% of the room at some of these events. I mean, that's your next generation of talent. Um, that's your next generation of founders, integration partners, whatever it yeah. might be. So um, breaking down the barrier that sometimes feels like I've got to get the diploma or hit the milestone to belong in this room. I think that's BS, and we need to make sure that doesn't exist. I think Awesome Inc. actually does a really good job of tearing I'm, those down. because I'm sure. I, yeah, I was, I think from freshman year, Brian Rainey invited me to yeah. the uh, Hall of Fame thing, and I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. And it, yeah. was, it was just very welcoming, even though I was young. I was new to Lexington. I didn't know much about even entrepreneurship, yeah. really. And that just continued on through the events that they put on, through the, you know, just the way they conduct business is very welcoming yeah. for anyone who wants to come in. I, I think they're very intentional about it, and yeah. it, you can tell. I gathered that. Um, I would place a bet and say, unfortunately, most cities aren't like that. No. Yeah, because not. they're not as, you know, a million different things. But most cities aren't like that. And... Awesome Inc. does a very good job, but I think every co-working space can continue to make extra steps, especially during this time when you have an unprecedented amount since college became popular or the norm. Thinking about taking a gap year and stuff like that. What an opportunity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. We always try to end on a forward-looking statement. Uh, we want to do that with ag tech this time. Jonathan Webb has said he wants to make Kentucky the ag tech capital yeah. of the world. Uh, we've had some great... Uh, ag tech guests on here and they all believe the same thing that this is possible uh forward-looking statement you know you're now going to be part of this ecosystem as you move some of your team back and have roots here uh what's that going to take and what's it going to look like into the future for kentucky yeah what's my statement okay i'm gonna like do a total spoiler alert on a thought piece my business partner frank and i are gonna do here shortly but we can totally promote it through multiple channels. So what, you know, we're dealing with technology, we're dealing with consumers and producers, and there's this great disconnect, as I shared. Um, we talk about, you know, consumers more and more and more, especially our generation, the ones below us, want transparency. They want to support brands they know and trust. I'm going to make a bold statement and say, you know, 10 years from now, the brands that are not transparent and do, do not actively take steps today to be as transparent as possible and listen to their consumers as often as possible will cease to exist. 
Um, if they think they know what's best and they don't you know, need to create feedback channels, whether they like the feedback or not, you will cease to exist. And you know, that parallel comes from you know, something Nate Morris did really well at Rubicon, make the parallel um, between BlackRock. Um, you know, Larry Fink, the CEO, said, you know, basically companies will cease to exist if they don't have a social purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So consumer businesses will cease to exist if they do not listen to the consumer and give them what they want and do that sustainably and transparently. Very well put. I just actually, the way you said that, uh, I just finished Mark Benioff's book, Trailblazer. I don't know yeah. if you know about that book. Basically is... Uh, Benioff is brilliant. I, he's <laughs> he's one of the most underrated founders, I think, on the planet because he's so enterprise focused. People don't even think about him. Mm-hmm. But like he's the software like guru. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. Totally. But his book is, is great. Trailblazer it always it talks about, you know, like you said, a business has to have that social cause behind it nowadays because that's what consumers want and they want that transparency and they want that trust to know yeah. that the businesses they work with are for a bigger, so, something bigger. Yeah. So here's my statement. 10 years, they're gone if they don't adapt. I mean, especially with the way social media is trending and how much of a voice people can have now and how much that one single voice can be elevated Yeah. due to social media. It's just like, you got to be in constant communication with your customers or else yep. you know, you're right. It's, you're going to go away. You're not going to make it.